Hi there, it's been a while since I released an episode here on the podcast and it's honestly good to be back, even if brief. For you who have missed the Hey Change podcast, Robin and I made a very intentional decision to take a break in early 2022 when I found out I was pregnant. Because with a baby on the way and understanding that, you know, that put me on somewhat of a timeline, I decided to get very intentional with a few projects that I wanted to bring to the world before my due date. And I also recognized my limitations in navigating pregnancy with the nausea and everything involved in that. And so it really forced me to learn how to set some boundaries. And I hate to say it, but putting a pause to the podcast was one of those things. Um, and yeah, with some quick math, you can come to the conclusion that I'm now a mother and my baby daughter is actually about to soon be one year old and I don't know where the time goes. It's quite unbelievable to even say that out loud, but that's the truth. I'm a mom of almost a year and I'm also proud to say that one of the things that I got super intentional with was finally finishing my book that I had been writing for almost a decade and I wanted the book to come out before my baby and so two weeks before she popped out my book actually made it into the world and got published and I am very proud of myself for that. The Climate Optimist Handbook is now available in online stores across the world so if you want to find it you can find it there and I'm also very grateful for the doors that this book has opened for me already and one of those doors was actually into a network of other super passionate and extremely talented climate authors especially in the mental health and climate space and I find it truly inspiring the kind of support and honestly collaborative spirit that I've come across when engaging with other authors in this field. And for you who follow me on social media, you may have seen that I've done a few collaborative posts and giveaways to help spread the message on mental health and the climate crisis because it is such an important one. And two of those authors that I've connected with are Tori Tsui, the author of It's Not Just You that came out this summer, and Britt Ray, author of Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. And I have read both of their books and they're absolutely fantastic and a must read for anyone who might be dealing with any sort of difficult emotions on this journey. So I highly recommend checking them out. And I'm also so excited to share this interview with you that we recorded together during an intimate gathering during Climate Week here in New York City just a few weeks ago. Some of the things that we talked about are what are eco-emotions and how are they affecting our everyday lives and what are eco-emotions are they more than just anxiety maybe there's a broader spectrum of emotions and we talked about that what role do these play in our ability and desire to make a difference and how do we overcome these mental barriers that are keeping us paralyzed and stuck in place a big shout out to asayas hernandez environmental educator and creator of the digital platform Queer Brown Vegan for moderating the panel. A big thank you to Lighthouse Brooklyn for letting us use their beautiful restaurant to host this event. A thank you to Nick LaPara for helping us record this audio, which we asked him last minute. We said, please come help us record this because so many people are asking for it to be shared. And lastly, a big thank you to Abigail Fenton who came and captured some beautiful photos that you can find on our social media. Okay, so without further ado, this is a special episode that I'm popping in to share with you so that you can all take part in this important conversation on the different emotions that we might be navigating in the climate crisis. 
Hi, everyone. It's so lovely to be able to have this discussion with you all and some of my favorite authors that I've been able to work with and read all your books very thoroughly. I Obviously, a lot of us are experiencing different types of emotions when it comes to the climate crisis. And one of those popular terms that has risen so much um, in Google searches is eco-anxiety. It's being used very loosely sometimes, but also um, in general marketing sense of this idea for the fear of the future of the planet. Now, my question for you all is to maybe briefly kind of introduce yourselves and kind of talk about your relationship with eco-anxiety, when it started to come out in your life, when did you start to really examine your relationship with the fear of the future of the planet, and maybe kind of also address how do you help others work through their eco-anxiety? We'll start off with Tori. Yeah. Hi, everyone. It's so lovely to be here in New York. Thank you for welcoming me to your city. It's been quite an intense week, which I think is also a testament to this topic of you know, reflecting on sustainability and mental health. Um, but I, you know, I wrote a book uh, called It's Not Just You, which explores the intersections between mental health and climate change. And it's really funny because um, I joke that the eco-anxiety tagline is actually a bit of a Trojan horse because I try and draw people in with a term that I think they recognize and then really try and make a sort of uh, more systemic and overall analysis of mental health and its interrelatedness with climate change. As Isaiah mentioned, like eco-anxiety um, can sometimes be a bit of a loose term, and I'll get to that in a bit. But, you know, insofar as my fear of the future, I definitely had a lot of mental health struggles um, in relation to the climate crisis, specifically when, you know, I grew up in a coastal city, um, Hong Kong. I actually grew up in a small fishing town in the Northeast, and just witnessing the environmental decimation around me was something that I found really impacted my mental health and so I began to think about this topic a lot but the term eco-anxiety didn't exist back then and quite frankly talking about the impact of your environment on your mental health was you know and give you you know people look at you kind of weird because they were like okay that's a bit of an overreaction obviously the dialogue has come a long way since then and I think even more so now we have an opportunity to really look at this term, you know, almost dissect it a bit and, and ask who does it speak for and who doesn't it speak for? Because for a lot of communities, this term um, can come across as a bit Eurocentric. And I really tried to delve deep into um, people's experiences who didn't relate to such a term and, and what struggles they were dealing with. So that's the book. That's a little bit about me. And I'll pass on to Britt. Um, thank you all so much for being here. Hey, I'm Britt Ray, and I'm the author of a book called Generation Dread, and uh, the director of an initiative focused on climate change and mental health in the med school at Stanford, which is brand new. And my resonance with climate anxiety really became salient for me a number of years ago, 2017, when my partner and I started talking about trying to get pregnant. And I was working as a science communicator and I was taking in all kinds of climate reports, as we all do, um, but up close and personal and then noticing the lack of effective action, of course, that goes with what the scientists are telling us. And as Tori's book, I think, really brilliantly points out and something that I write about, too, is that we who feel distressed about the climate crisis are not doing so because the environment isn't doing well and that alone is our sole stressor. It's rather that we are 
understanding the depth of institutional betrayal that we are experiencing on this crisis. As power holders have long known and predicted the strife that the globe would be in today as a result of actions not taken, um, the fossil fuel industry, corruption, malfeasance, capture of our political and policy system has you know, been well understood since at least the 70s from internal modeling groups. Um, and here we are, right? And we're dealing with rising catastrophes and we have to ask serious questions about what it means for a person born today to live safely in this world and thrive. And I was also feeling very much, um, you know, I'm a privileged white middle-class Canadian woman. I'm not on the front lines of the climate crisis. Is this twisted that I'm connecting family planning to the climate crisis. And I had to dig into that and get much wider and diverse perspective on what the psychological impacts are of the climate crisis today. So I set out to write a book. I turned my science communicator mind on myself to see, okay, if I'm having these intrusive thoughts and it's difficult to concentrate and I'm really feeling a lot of outrage and sadness and anxiety about this, what does it mean for others who are in the crosshairs of the climate emergency today? And this led to a lot of realizations about the solutions that are available, which are proliferating and widely studied to help mental health innovation look like social innovation, to help increase communities of care, to help get therapeutic support beyond the biomedical one-on-one -on -one model to people most in need through empowering our communities and lay people to know how to wield these tools and then proliferate them in the place where they matter most. So, yeah. We need a global conversation about the mental health emergency within the climate emergency and how we can help each other build psychological resilience with climate reality. Um, and that's, yeah, that's me. But in a nutshell, I wrote the book that I myself needed because at that time in 2017, there wasn't a lot of us doing this. And now, fortunately, there's so many of us doing this. And it's really beautiful to watch that proliferation. Thank you, both of you. Um, so I started my journey of climate anxiety when I was in middle school and I first learned about climate change watching The Inconvenient Truth and didn't know of course I started my journey of climate anxiety because no one was even talking about anything like that back then and it wasn't until I reflected in my late 20s back on all these years since I could see how it all had progressed and gotten worse and led to all different things from eating disorders to just not being able to fully live in the present. Um, and it's interesting because I started my journey as a climate optimist, which is what my book, The Climate Optimist Handbook, is about. Um, actually, starting it, and in the early days of being a climate optimist, my climate anxiety intensified, and that was really interesting. And so the journey I went on was recognizing what does it mean to be one, and, and, and what are the practices that we have to continue to show up in for ourselves and for the world that are sustaining us as much as it's sustaining the movement. And so, although it's a book about becoming the change that we want to see and helping people becoming change makers, it's very much focused on taking care of ourselves, tending to ourselves, and coming back to realizing that we're only as strong as you know we help ourselves to be, so to speak. And so, yes, my work is very much rooted in that, and I'm so honored to share this panel with you guys. Yeah, well, thank you so much for that. And it seems like the common thread around all of us here is like the curiosity to ask questions is what leads us. I mean, as species, the desire to exist and to continue to live and to actually, those are normal emotions to actually feel as humans. And, you know, I think one of the things that I get in, in, the, in the field itself is like the critique around eco-anxiety is like, 
is eco-anxiety really enough to illustrate the ways that people feel when experiencing climate disasters or when living near toxic industries or just fearing the fear of the future of the planet? I know, Tori, that in your book, um, you mentioned that eco-anxiety can sometimes be a bit reductive um, and that there's also other emotions to really explore. And I remember seeing how many people have already experienced extreme types of weathers. And um, in Canada, there was like a wildfire that basically engulfed all of New York City a few months ago. And there was an article in The Guardian that basically noted that um, there, a therapist had seen an increase of people wanting to seek eco-anxiety. And that was a very um, uh, interesting thing to talk about because a lot of them weren't experiencing eco-anxiety, they were experiencing other forms. So I'd love to really learn more about those types of terminologies. Yeah, for sure. So um, I kind of see it in like three parts when it came to the book writing process and then also the people that I interviewed. So the first aspect of it was anxiety is kind of this amorphous term that doesn't really necessarily encapsulate all of these diverse emotions that we feel as people and also the fact that these emotions can overlap quite a lot so we wanted to you know think about okay the people that I was speaking to that is what sort of emotions do you experience and anger was something that came up time and time and time again to the point where actually the majority of youth climate justice activists that I interviewed said that they don't really have this feeling of anxiety so much as this absolute disdain and rage against those who are destroying their communities and destroying the planet. So the emotional attribute to that was something that came up quite a lot. And then the other element was it what with it was this element of time, this futurity element of eco-anxiety, this relatedness to this fear of the future was not something that actually a lot of them thought much about. It was very much a day-to-day -day struggle and one that was um, kind of based around trauma and grief. So for people who have lived and lost as a result of the climate crisis, that was something where a lot of them really felt like, you know, this fear of the future feels incredibly Eurocentric because for those who have not had to deal with the brunt of climate injustice, they're suddenly waking up to the realities of this eco-anxiety that they speak of. And then thirdly, the thing that came up was, okay, well, you know, it's very, it's very framed in this way that it has to do with the physical manifestations of a dying planet as opposed to the injustices, the social injustices that um, are very much a part of the climate crisis. And for one friend in particular, Laura, who I interview in the book, I actually met her in Colombia after a project. She said to me, you know, um, my fear is of police brutality. My day-to-day -day fear is of police brutality. Colombia is the most dangerous place to be an environmental defender. And it just comes across as a little bit like there's this term and we're trying to project it onto people whose realities are actually a lot more nuanced to have to deal with the social injustices that are present in their countries. And also bearing the brunt of colonialism in many ways means that for many people, um, you know, the legacies of colonialism are impacting the social injustices that exist today. So I really feel as though if we kind of look at it from those three attributes, we can start to create more inclusive rubrics for how we understand the impacts of mental health um, on, on people, specifically in my case, how I was interviewing a lot of young people. Um, and more personally, I, I definitely relate to a lot of the things that I mentioned where I don't feel like eco-anxiety is a big enough term to hold space for the absolute disgust that I have, that there are, you know, fossil fuel industry executives and, and companies that are built off 
colonial exploitation that are actually destroying people's communities and that have relied on um, you know, white supremacy to, to create this structure that we live in right now. So I, I take eco-anxiety as this Trojan horse, as I mentioned, this entry point into talking about these conversations and then use that as a way to broaden the discussion to make sure that those who are most marginalized are not left behind because often is the case that when we have a struggle, sometimes it can become exclusive and we need to make sure that everyone is part of this conversation and no one is free until everyone is free. You know, I, I really love the emphasis around the historical part because I think that really illustrates the cascading effect that we're currently seeing today. And that's something where we're only seeing what's happening now, but this has been something that's been happening for decades now. And, re and one of those important components in trying to communicate climate emotions is the science. And I know Britt Ray, like you've been doing so much extensive research in your field to really provide some of those statistics and to further illustrate the ways in which we um, ensure that mental health studies are focusing also on a climate component. So I'd love to learn more about that on that end. Some of the trappings that Tori is detailing are really a product of our media system and how they, they work in very restrained ways to focus on something as simplistic as climate or eco-anxiety, but there are other terms that exist to speak to more direct experience of loss, destruction, and injustice. Ecological grief, for instance, uh, has been studied predominantly in Inuit communities in the circumpolar north of Labrador, and it has three tracks. It's about grieving real environmental losses that are already underway as they're dealing with sea, sea ice loss, which means that they can't traipse where ancestors have for thousands of years and they can't hunt and fish. And that also then leads to loss of cultural identity and community cohesion. And then there's also the bit about anticipatory grief, which is expecting future changes, which will also take a real mental health toll. And so solastalgia, you know, the homesickness that we can have when we're still at home after negative environmental changes happen there. It, there is more to appreciate about how people are attending to this through a research lens to understand real direct threats of especially people who are dealing with intersecting injustices of which climate injustice is one. And what we're learning is that from studies that have been done in 32 countries or 10 countries, really global across low, middle and high income nations, this distress, I like climate distress as a term more because it's an umbrella that encapsulates it. This is a gang of difficult feelings we can cycle through. It's like sadness and grief and outrage and maybe despair, sometimes a sense of hopelessness, maybe guilt, uh, depending on your positionality and so on and so forth. Um, this distress is hurting people's mental health everywhere. This is not just a Western problem, for instance. It's not just for those who are worrying about uh, a disastrous future that hasn't yet hit them personally. It's really in the most affected places and areas. Um, and we also see that, unsurprisingly, it's intensified for those in the global south. When we look at the functional impairment of climate thoughts and feelings, if you ask questions about how this interferes with eating, sleeping, concentrating, getting through the day, playing, having fun, being in relationships, it's those who are on the front lines of the climate crisis who deserve the most direct climate mental health support. Um, but that's often missing from the discourse. We know that there's a strong association between these difficult climate emotions and future planning. So as I mentioned, my on-ramp was reproductive anxiety. You know, I did end up working through that and having a child. Um, but there are many, many young people today who are saying that they refuse to have children or will expect that they will not have children. 
because of the climate crisis. Um, and this is not also just in uh, the global north. This is now global. We can see this in many, many countries. Uh, also, ideas about what kind of education to get, where to resource oneself in order to be prepared for the workforce, young people being willing to take pay cuts to be able to work in organizations that are more aligned with their climate politics, for instance. So some of this can be really constructive and helpful. Um, we also see that climate emotions are not all negative. <laughs> so there's a wonderful taxonomy created by Panu Pikula, a Finnish researcher, that shows a lot of people resonate with love, with connection, with solidarity, with joy and especially with deeper meaning and purpose, because we are dealing with existential issues that get us to really brush the distractions away and consider what is a life worth living and how can we be of service and how does that then feel our souls in the way that, you know, Viktor Frankl, who lived and survived through the concentration camps in World War II, identified the entire philosophy that what drives humankind is to find meaning even in suffering. And we can draw lessons from that and from our climate emotions today to make us more psychologically sturdy as we do the work of mitigating more harm. So we're seeing a lot of really interesting science, but it's really only recently that psychologists have figured out how to research this and it's still being debated. There are climate change anxiety scales, eco-anxiety scales, different psychometrically validated tools that you can go into a community and, and rate people on. Um, but, you know, the jury's still out on the best way to measure this, and the research field, as a result, is kind of a mess. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of complexity in there. Um, and I think a problem with this, too, is that a lot of it is pathologizing. It these scales are modeled off of general anxiety disorder scales, which are used to find mental disorder, but clinicians and researchers have rose up to say, this distress, climate anxiety, whatever you want to call it, it's not pathological, it's not a disorder, it's actually a rational and appropriate response if you're paying attention, and it's a sign that you care, it's a badge of compassion, and so we can, we can help each other sit with that and find you know, harnessing for collective ac action and efficacy through that care. So is measuring this with mental health tools that look for mental disorder, really the right way, right way to inform policy in our global conversation. We're still figuring that out. Yeah, and I think I love the fact of where you come. Um, one of the favorite quotes I always love to use from you is directly that um, it's not a disorder, it's a normal response. And I think that really adds character to these bodily emotions that we all experience as people. And from the systemic institutional side, it seems like, you know, these large entities can sometimes be very difficult to communicate to communities, right? Like, I think when the first time I heard about eco-anxiety in college, I was like, sorry, laughing, because I'm like, I have anxiety just as, as a human individual. Like, I'm stressed about my grades or my classes, and I didn't really put it into context of how they're all interconnected to the larger systems of that we're experiencing. And with that, you know, and Therese, your book about how to be a climate optimist really illustrates it um, from this individual and systemic change, of course, but more on the individual of really building emotional resiliency. And you talk about how people who are experiencing eco-anxiety or climate distress, they have to build emotional resiliency, but able to manage it. And I think that's something that a lot of us... Um, a lot of us really struggle with the ongoing usage of trying to manage these emotions. So can you talk more about that in your book? Yes. Um, 
Well, like I sort of mentioned earlier, in my early days as a climate optimist, I thought the way to be one was to just, you know, turn a blind eye to all the negative and focus on the positive solutions because there are a few in between that are good and optimistic. And if I only focus on them and start to help spread those good, positive, vibey news, then I can be a climate optimist and sort of be like this smile, always like walking around saying like, we can do this, people. And my anxiety only grew stronger because what I realized was that even if I'm not consciously paying attention, my body is subconsciously picking up this information and just storing it for a better day. And what happens is that one day it's all going to be just so full to the brain where you crash. And I have had tantrums in the car, just sort of like crying out of nowhere. I have been mad over a plastic fork and made a huge thing out of it. Like it's just been like ridiculous scenes after ridiculous scene. And my husband was really sweet in the early days and just sticking with me. Um, but what I realized was that trying to ignore the negative is not a way to either be a climate optimist or an optimist at all um, or to make change happen. And so for me, going on this journey and like learning about myself and, and learning from you know, peers in the industry and, and seeing like what is working, and I realized, what I realized was that it always has to start from us and how do we grow that resilience that allows us to continue through these days. Because I hate to say it, even if we start to take all the actions we have to take you know, take, take them today or tomorrow, we will still see a few decades of extreme weather events, um, of continuous weirding, of just more disasters and heartbreak. And so what does it mean to be a human being through these times? What does it mean to live and continue to live and continue to show up for the work and not lose hope? And it's gonna come, it's gonna come back to us and finding that reason and that purpose and that meaning to to seek community to do what we can to continue to try and from that trying build on the journey forward um, so for me now when people ask me and there's been a lot of pushback on climate optimism lately which I love because then I get a chance to defend myself um, it is not this techno optimism and like we've figured it out in the past and we're gonna figure this out because we're smart and we're brilliant it's like yes we are but you know what we're standing for now we've never ever seen anything this scary, so to speak. We've never been through this challenge before. Um, and so, I lost my train of thought. What was I saying? <laughs> um, so, right, so to be a climate optimist is not just to be like, okay, we're gonna figure this out because we're smart and we're awesome and that's what we do. Of course, yes, we tap into that, but we also have to remember that, you know, there will be days when we don't think we're gonna figure it out. And how do we show up through those days? Um, how do we take care of ourselves? I think we can all relate to just this week, how overwhelming and intense it's been just to like go to all these events and think that we can rally through and recognize that at the end of the day, we're just human and we're tired. We need to eat and rest and like take care of ourselves. And so for me, climate optimism is born in that intersection of being aware of the issue, continue to stay aware. Don't, don't try to put a blind eye into it because it's gonna catch up with you. Um, but how can you stay aware without getting overwhelmed? How can you stay aware and still find hope to take action? And it's paired with the taking action piece in community with others. And that is how you grow your own optimism and continue to show up um, and to continue to be an ally through these times. I really love that. And I think it adds really huge character in what we're trying to build in emotional resiliency. But one of the favorite chapters I like is ignorance is not bliss in your book where you say, yes, denying climate change or even the realities causes more distress. And, you know, we talk a lot about climate change deniers and we're, we, we often silo them. And that chapter really made me realize in my own self of like, am I pushing people too far 
where they're not even able to really express themselves about why they deny climate change and are they also hurting by denying that and I think um, you know you interact a lot with different audiences from different political spectrums what do, would you tell people that have and these people that read these books are often having family members in our own lives that do deny climate change so how do we talk about that with them Wow, <laughs> one of the hardest questions I feel we can ever talk about. Um, well, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that healthy denials is important too because we can't just continuously stay aware of what's going on because it's we can't go on with our days, right? We have to, at some point, take a break and cook dinner for our family and whatnot. Um, so healthy denial, I think, is an essential piece of being an activist and an optimist and, and an advocate. Um, but we can't deny it to the point where we don't get to action. And I'll just quickly share a very interesting study of, um, I don't remember what year it was, but they conducted a study at UC Berkeley actually, where they wanted to see if trying to stay in, you know, be a little bit oblivion or try to sort of tune out would help you be less stressed about an issue. So what they did was they gave people uh, electrical shocks. This was before this was forbidden. So it was probably a while back, but they gave students electrical shocks and they gave them two options. They could either, know when it was about to happen. So they will give you a warning like five seconds before, and then you can opt out to say like, I don't want the shock. And you can like push a, push a button and um, avoid getting the shock. Or you can just listen to good music and try that you're not gonna feel it at all. So those were two options. And then they measured how their brains, how, how the stress levels in their brains were depending on their option. And um, as you might expect, if they had the option of opting out of getting the electrical shock, their stress was lower because they were like, I'm in control, you know, I can, I can choose not to get this because I don't want to have pain and whatnot. Um, and so that was pretty, you know, expected. But then they took it further to see, okay, we take out the option of avoiding it. So there's no button to push to not get the shock. They will all get it, but you can still choose to know when it's coming or to listen to music and just, just sort of feel it when it comes. And interestingly enough, even if they had no choice to opt out of getting the shock, it was still lower stress in their brains if they knew when it was coming. Mm -hmm. So even, you know, you might think that if I listen to music, I can sort of tune it out and not pay attention to it, but their stress level was still higher than those who choose to know when it's coming. And it just really speaks to that denial or ignorance is not always bliss, that sometimes even if it's really difficult, it is better to know because we do feel like we're in some sort of a control. And when we are in control, we can choose to take action. So um, for anyone who is in denial or doesn't want to face what we're dealing with, um, share that little experiment and say, you might want to know because it's actually going to empower you and that hopefully make you feel better about it too. Yeah, and that goes into weaving also, like we mentioned in the beginning, different subjects from the historical component. And I think, Tori, you mentioned in your book specifically around the importance of addressing intersectionality and mental health because it's obviously not self-care and bath bombs. It goes beyond that of actually looking at the different industries like pharmaceutical or the psychiatric industry and how that really plays a role in how people really identify with earth emotion. So I'd love to learn more about that. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, I've, I've talked a bit about climate justice, but climate justice understands that there are multiple systems of oppression um, that we need to tackle in order to tackle the climate crisis. Because, you know, I often talk about the word radical and it becomes synonymous with this sort of like anger and destroying stuff. But actually radical comes from the Latin meaning root. 
And if we're not tackling these systems radically, we are not going to get rid of the climate crisis. And this climate crisis is built off of exploitation. And if you go back far enough in history, there is a very particular logic of supremacy which has shown that we are separate from nature, which has seen women as less than men, which has so, sh tried to create um, systems of racial hierarchy and other people on the basis of, well, they're not human. There are some humans and then there are people who are not human at all. And that system, these systems of oppression have continued to this day to harm people's mental health. And if we're talking about the climate crisis, which is fundamentally built off of this exploitation, and if we're talking about mental health, you begin to realize there's a lot of overlap. Those who are most likely to experience the brunt of mental health injustice at the hands of the society we live in or at the hands of the climate crisis tend to be the same people. And in the context of climate change, you know, Britt rightly said that actually those who are on the front lines, those in the global south, often get left out of the conversation. And they're the people who do experience some of the greatest um, mental health stresses in response to the climate crisis. But the problem is when we try and silo climate change and its impacts on mental health and mental health distress as a whole, we're actually doing a disservice to tackling this radically. And, you know, I talk about in my book how Far too often when we talk about mental health, it's pathologized, as you mentioned. But did you know that in the UK, black people are nine times more likely to be di diagnosed with schizophrenia? Is that as a result of genetics? Or is that the environment that they live in? And we pathologize these experiences and we go, oh, you're depressed. And it, the same happens with women. Women often get labeled as, you know, uh, one very popular condition is borderline personality disorder, being hysterical, being, you know, a psycho, but living in a system that is inherently making you unwell shouldn't be pathologized. And we need to be so careful when it comes to something like climate anxiety to do the same, to say to people, hey, you know, you're experiencing these injustices, therefore you're crazy. No, we need to actually break those barriers down. And I think in the context of climate change and intersectionality, Again, we're not going to tackle it at the root if we don't consider this. But also, as I wrote about in my book and when I was interviewing people, many people didn't really adhere to this you know, definition of eco-anxiety. And they wanted to broaden the conversation to include those injustices. You know, racial injustice is such a huge part of climate injustice. For so many people who were experiencing, whether you call it anger or grief, um, often it was because of the intersections of, say, environmental degradation and racism. You know, environmental racism is such a huge problem all around the world where black and brown people live in sacrifice zones, which are essentially where environmental degradation happens. And that's a huge source of mental distress. In the UK, places of um, high levels of air pollution directly coincide where black and brown people live. And in the UK, there was one young girl called Ella who uh, came from a black community in Lewisham. And she was the first person to be diagnosed with having her um, death on her death certificate was air pollution, right? And her mother has been fighting tirelessly and is extremely stressed out and extremely mentally unwell as a result of this. And there are studies that also show that people who live in levels of um, high air pollution are more likely to be suicidal, more likely to have high rates of depression, anxiety. But that is an environmental issue as well. Um, so in essence, we don't want to leave anyone behind. We want to make sure that these conversations are tackling these issues um, at all points. And I know, Isaiah, you write a lot about environmental racism as well, specifically in how it exists in Los Angeles. Um, and so I feel like until we're actually having these conversations, we're not going to address these things radically.
Yeah, and I think with the illustrating how environmental racism is real talks about the fact that, you know, nature isn't racist, but the people in power that have the power to implement policies and practices in communities are in fact racist, and there's been historical evidence on that. And that kind of goes into the resistance of movements, right? Grassroots movements in the climate justice space have always been able to really provide groundwork foundation that communicates to so many groups of people because often at times, um, as we mentioned, and we've talked about this too, Britt, like academia can sometimes be a bit inaccessible, especially when the research is being designed sometimes by those communities. And that kind of goes into the youth climate justice movement. And Tori, I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts more, is how do you, what are some of the strengths that some of these movements are coming to when talking about eco-anxiety? Because I think as there was a study done that adults actually laugh less than kids, and adults are actually more susceptible to isolation than kids. And obviously with COVID and everything that's happened, that's really influenced a lot of the ways in which we interact with each other. So I kind of want to learn more about those interactions that are happening in the justice space. Yeah, for sure. I, I don't think community is unique to just the youth climate justice movement, but it, it is a testament to the community that we've built. Um, we've all seen, you know, over the last few years or so, these uprisings that have happened all across the world. And I can speak personally that without that community, I would not be where I am today. I would be so much mentally worse. Um, and I feel like because there are so many young people who have banded together, who have really tried to take action for the climate, many people are actually in a much better mental position as a result of it. And Britt also writes about how community is needed for resilience. And I'd love for you to talk about that in a bit. And so I feel like when it comes to the youth climate justice movement, we're in a much better position as well, as you kind of mentioned about like not turning away from it. All of us are, are really deeply engaged. It's painful sometimes, I, I won't lie, like it's very painful to do this work constantly. But at the same time, the, what's the alternative, you know? And I think what the alternative was for me, like say nearly 10 years ago, it was not great. So for me, I, I personally feel like the community resilience is what's kept me going. No, I absolutely agree. I think, like you were saying, it's not just ex it's not just exclusive to the youth groups. It's always existed in so many different ages of groups. And um, with that, you know, our young generation faces the digital era, and I think Gen Z is heavily focused on social media. And Britt, you kind of really talked about um, in one of your books, like the feeling of loneliness and the loneliness epidemic, and how you know isolation can sometimes be seen as a death sentence because those that are most susceptible to isolation are kids, um, elders, people who are disabled that are often um, populations that are not described as contributing to GDP to countries. So I kind of want to learn more about that research. Uh, yeah, thanks, Isaiah. So the U.S. Surgeon General has called out loneliness now as a bona fide public health epidemic, right? More people are living alone now than ever before in human history. And our physical and mental health is suffering incredibly as a result of this, which is very ironic given our always connected digital device-driven world today. But the thing is that we have a proliferation of weaker bonds, weaker social ties as a result of these digital forms of relationship as opposed to being together like we are right now in community, in the flesh, having all of that nonverbal communication weigh in on the ways that we can come together and form community. So... 
Why is this a problem in the climate crisis? Of course, because we want to be physically and mentally well, and loneliness and isolation works directly against that, but also because the most compelling evidence that we have from disaster studies, from psychiatry, from looking at the history of atrocities that have ever hit our species, is that humans who are part of communities that have strong social ties, social connectedness, and what's called social capital, which is the ability of people to come together and achieve shared goals because we have the skills of knowing how to lead, how to follow, how to cooperate. Well, when adversity hits, when the floods come, when the wildfires stroke our neighborhoods, when any kind of devastation robs our life and livelihood, the people who make it to the far side of those challenges with significantly lower anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, suicidal thinking and behavior, those are the people with high social capital, high social trust. It's incredible, again and again and again. We see this in terms of communities that fared better after Hurricane Katrina and were able to pool resources and finances and share information more effectively and rebuild and engage in community revitalization projects. Um, And so we really need to invest in getting to know our neighbors, not just because it's a nice thing to do, but it's actually a crux of mental health protection and promotion strategies. And it's all about co-benefits. Like I agree with Tori from my experience. Similarly, it's the community of being along with people who care about this that protects and promotes my mental health and my sturdy version of hope given climate reality. So yeah, that's a message that is so far not loudly enough spoken. But what is exciting is that there's all this political attention now on the loneliness epidemic because it's being taken seriously by governments. And however we solve for that is going to be a co-benefit and a win-win solution for climate resilience issues too. Yeah, I really love the problem identification here because it's showcasing like even our generation, I was telling this to Tori, it's like, it is very hard to connect with young people, even our own ages, where it almost seems like we have, of course, boundaries, but there's walls on us that have, I think, prevented us from even furthering and deepening those relationships. And, you know, you talked more about the roles of those systems in mental health and how those systems can actually really play a huge success in saving communities. And I kind of want you to talk more about it because I think there's a grassroots um, terminology that's called like mutual aid that has actually come from this idea of like many people that live in suburban communities often are nuclear and do not really interact with each other versus communities that have like least amount of resources often know each other. Um, And these are usually like immigrant communities. 100% mutual aid is very hopeful and has been proven to increase the social capital trust and ties that protect mental health compared to those who Again, when you study them, people who are isolated are going to have higher anxiety, depression, PTSD, and onwards. Mutual aid is about coming together, sharing resources, sharing information, and taking shared ownership over one's survivability, being able to get through the day. And then there's positive mental health effects that come from those relationships. Now, some of you may be aware that because of the rise of climate distress out there and climate trauma, there are professional organizations focused on climate-aware therapy, places like the Climate Psychology Alliances of the UK and North America, the Climate Psychiatry Alliance, Psychologists for a Safe Climate, and so on. And this is wonderful and innovative because, let's face it, you need to have, if you're going to go to get therapy, you need to make sure that they are on the right side of climate reality and not going to gaslight you with denial like anyone else may, very likely, if you just go to a run-of-the-mill therapist, so to speak. So it's helpful in that way. But one-on-one therapy 
is not going to address this crisis, right? It only serves the most enfranchised and privileged among us. And for obvious justice reasons, we need things that can spread and scale in the most directly impacted areas. And fortunately here too, we have tons of solutions from global mental health, which has been preoccupied with how do you get mental health services into low and middle income countries where sometimes there's one mental health professional for 10 million people. Like the numbers there are very challenging. What you can do is called task shifting. There's more than 100 clinical trials around this is when you take the specialist or the doctor or the psychiatrist out of that role of being a specialist and they become a trainer and they train lay people in the community who stand up and want to be part of serving their community to help them with things like anxiety and depression and they receive interventions that are stripped of their jargon and simplified and then with that empowered training they go out and they help people who are in the market with them who are in the schools with them you know who are familiar because they're neighbors and clinical trials show that people recover more effectively than if they had gotten that support from primary care from a mental health professional, which is amazing because that is affordable, right? And it relies on mutual aid, but just a different version of it. And what does that mean to bring it to all settings, to even America, of the highest resource setting that there is, so to speak? We need this because the pandemic has shown us how we don't have enough clinicians to meet the need and we need to think differently. We need to bring a social innovation model to how we get support to those um, on the front lines of the climate crisis. So I'm super excited about that. And I thank you for the question because every time that I can talk about global mental health as the missing link, I think that that's gonna be the future in this area. Yeah, I really love the emphasis on evidence-based hope and just like not this wishful thinking, but the actual ideas of like, there are studies that have actually shown when you're in with community, you're more likely to overcome and manage and tend to those feelings rather than falling into those emotions of despair. And I, I just really appreciate this whole conversation around it. And I know that there's moments in my life where I'm so inspired by these conversations and I'm like, wow, I feel hopeful. But the minute I get to my house and I'm alone in my bed, I'm like, I'm not hopeful. So I kind of want to ask you each and every one of you is like, what are ways and tips that you would give to this, the average person that really struggles with the constant basis of like between happiness and hopeful and in despair and doom and what really gives you that grounding in moments of instability? Um, yeah, so for me, it's organizing. I know that sounds very cliche, but it's genuinely what keeps me going and it, it feels like a way to actually tackle something like eco-anxiety or climate grief head on. Um, I organized, some of my comrades are here, um, I organized with a campaign called Stop Rosebank in the UK, which is trying to shut down the largest undeveloped oil field in the North Sea. And for me, if I'm going to be really frank, something like the fossil fuel industry is what makes me mentally unwell. And if I can tackle the fossil fuel industry, then I ultimately see that as a long-term thing. I feel like far too often, the struggles that we have mentally are individualized and we blame ourselves for something like eco-anxiety. But actually, there are people with names and addresses who are behind these really destructive systems that are making us mentally unwell. And until we tackle that, we're not addressing it at the root radically. Um, so organizing is, is the way that kind of keeps me sane. But this is just a personal tip as well for anyone who's ever doom scrolled before and feels like being online is really destructive. I don't read all the climate news. I think I know enough of where we are at the moment. I definitely consume stuff, you know, uh, as a result of being an organizer, but I make a point not to surround myself with 
doomsday-esque headlines because I think that that doesn't do anything for myself or my community and actually distracts me from what I want to do, which is organizing. So if you find that you spend like way too much time on Twitter, I'm not calling it X. <laughs> like, no way. Um, if you notice yourself getting into that habit of doom scrolling, nip it in the bud. It's, it's, not, gonna, it's not gonna help you be motivated. It's not gonna help your community. Um, if there's a campaign on there that you, know, you wanna amplify and get involved with, that's a good way to use it. But for me, doom scrolling is a no-no. Well, so many things. Um, well, first of all, it's already covered today, but these emotions aren't inherently bad for us. In fact, when we acknowledge them and allow ourselves to feel them, we can let them activate us into something great, which is this movement of change that we need right now. Um, I came across by a quote by um, Cristiana Fieres just recently, and the reason for why I'm a climate optimist is not because I want it to be that way, but because we actually have the solutions that we need to create the world that we want to see. Um, it's, we don't have to figure it out. We have figured it out. We don't have to come up with the solutions. We have the solutions. What we need now to activate this exponential curve of, of solutions and optimism and hope is exponential thinking and decision making. And that's why it comes back to us. And that's why we are so important here because we have figured it out, now let's just do it. Um, and so when we come across these feelings that seem heavy and hard, anger is one that we've talked about. Anger can be the most beautiful emotion there is because it, it initiates change. Um, and something about the world tells us that we don't like this. And so we are given a direct response of, you know, what doesn't feel right to me and how can I make a difference? Now, I understand that sometimes when it comes to the climate crisis, it feels like we don't have the power to do anything. Um, and that's very overwhelming and disempowering in itself. But I think we can see just from the room here today and how many people are, you know, interested in the climate conversation, in empowering ourselves and dealing with the feelings that we're feeling right now. It, it speaks to that we can do something. And stuff like organizing like Tori is doing, um, it can also just be talking about climate change to your folks around at home because there's some crazy stat out there that only one in four Americans hear about climate change every month, which is insane to me. Um, I hope that number has changed a little bit in a couple of years it's been out. but. Just talking about it, making it normal to care about climate change. And I think also help people realize that we are ultimately in this together. We can definitely point out who we need to blame for this and hold them accountable. But we shouldn't put that blame on ourselves because we were born into a world that is dysfunctional and that world is crumbling and that's scary and uncertain. And then some days it can be very overwhelming. But it's also a beautiful thing because this allows us to actually create something better moving forward. And so on a daily, you know, how do I empower myself? I try to stay in tune with nature. I go for a lot of walks. Um, I try to find joy. Luckily, I have a beautiful daughter. She's 10 months old. Um, so I also have struggled with the whole, like, should I have kids or not? I decided to do, go that route. But she helps me ground myself, you know? She actually shows me what it's like to just be here and appreciate the small moments and recognize that we have so much and we need to not forget that. And when you tune into that daily, you remember why we're doing this. And you remember that, yes, things might be unfair and we didn't create this mess, but it is what it is. And now let's come together and make something beautiful out of it. Um, I also love that we record this in Brooklyn in like busiest corner. <laughs> uh, it just speaks to the resilience that we need in the crazy world around us. But yeah, thank you. You know, it's an important question because what I don't think we talk about 
is that once you have coping skills, it's not that you simply get to the far side of grief and outrage and then are sturdy and solid forever, right? The gang of difficult feelings will come back and come back because we are bearing witness to real suffering and injustice in an incredible way. So what is strengthening is that when one does have coping tools such as what Tori says, and I totally agree, like as the author and activist Adrian Marie Brown says so eloquently, what we pay attention to grows. Don't intentionally stress yourself by doom scrolling all the time. Um, make conscious spaces for rest, for breaks, for filling your cup with things that bring you joy, that you know, fill you with gratitude, um, that bring love and connection and so on. Take actions because we psychologically suffer, even unconsciously, when we notice that our aspirations for how the world should be how regenerative and healthy that future looks like are not at all in alignment with how we're living. So anything you can do to narrow that gap brings psychic relief in an unconscious way. So action is super important, but not too much that you burn out and don't care for yourself, right? And then how can we go from, you know, some might respond to climate anxiety with paralysis, with avoidance, with sticking their head in the sand. They just can't tolerate um, this reality. It's too painful. But how can we flip avoidance that is unconscious to conscious forms of distancing. We need that. And this is where we might talk about self-care in measure to bring into that cadre of tools that we, that we use when the going gets rough. But what I wanted to mention is that we will toggle between states of distress and states of resilience, right? Because this is a really dynamic, changing world and turbulent time that we're in. But the cool thing is that over time, as we observe ourselves doing this lateral motion of toggling between distress and resilience, we get familiar with the fact that we can pull ourselves out again. This is not going to hang around forever. This is motion, right? And so that trust brings the confidence that we're going to swing back to the glory side again. And all of that toggling is strengthening in itself. I wanted to quickly add something that um, actually my friend said to me. So fun fact, my friend Santo there, we actually sailed across the Atlantic together and it was a very difficult time. Um, but one thing that my friend Nat said to me, which literally like honestly saved my life, quite frankly, she said, you've survived it once, you'll survive it again. And coming back to that idea that, you know, this was an unfamiliar territory for me, these feelings weren't unfamiliar, was such a huge relief. And I could automatically feel myself having confidence in my ability to become more resilient. And I, that's why, you know, when you said that, it made me think of that experience because truly it, it, it transformed the way that I navigated my mental health struggles. Yeah, thank you for sharing all these ways to ground ourselves, especially during Climate Week New York City, where it seems like we're supposed to be advocating for the planet, but everyone here it seems a bit stressed out having to go to event to yeah. event. I have to go to an event after. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, we never get to rest. But I think for me, like the other day, I was in Williamsburg near my old job, and I found a reishi mushroom, and I'm a huge forager, and it made me stop for like two minutes just to appreciate, like, the earth is living like we are alive so it's growing? Like, yeah it's growing yeah i have a video of it too oh, cool. but with that being said um you know i want to give this a very um last fire shot round is um how can we support your work where can we buy your books because we should all be reading your books um yeah i'll start with the first um my work is community work 
So if you support the campaigns that I work on or amplify them, then you are inadvertently supporting me and yourself. Um, so Stop Rosebank is the, yeah, the campaign that we work on. So please, please, please go check it out. Rather confusingly, it's like, it's called Stop Cambo on Instagram, but that's because we shut that oil field down. So, <laughs> so Stop Cambo is the name of the project on Instagram. Um, C-A-M-B-O, that's correct, yes. Yes. Um, and the book, it's unfortunately not available in the US, despite the fact that I have a US publisher. I don't know, make it make sense. But it's available on Blackwell's bookstore and they ship internationally. So that's a UK based bookseller, but they, yeah. I see a few nodding heads because uh, <laughs> some folks have bought it there. Thank you. Yeah. So my team and I have a newsletter called Gen Dread off the name of the book, Generation Dread. GenDread.substack.com is where you can find it. And we're creating and sharing resources for staying sane in the climate crisis. And if you want to support that work, um, that's amazing. And there's an opportunity to pledge at the newsletter. But the book itself um, comes out in paperback with a different cover than the one you see here today, October 3rd in the US. But there's a QR code there to be able to snag that copy. And yeah. We're going to do a giveaway of these books to some people in the room in just a moment. So, yeah, you can find it online um, just by snapping a pic. And um, my website is theclimateoptimist.com. You can find my, my master class, which is a 10-session short course on things to empower yourself and become a change maker. Uh, you find my book there. I also have a Substack newsletter that used to be weekly, then after baby, more so like sporadically coming out <laughs> with issues. Um, and yeah, I, um, I always have my thoughts and ideas for collaborations. So if you stay tuned on newsletter and stuff like that, you'll stay up to tune with what I'm doing. But my book is available, I used to say it on Amazon, but also on individual bookstores. So if you search it online, there should be multiple options of where to order it um, globally. So if you, no matter what country you live in, I think it should provide options of how to get in, hopefully. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Please network with our panelists and please enjoy all the water out here. <laughs> <laughs>